As we begin our time in the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise this morning for the glorious truths of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we are grateful that today, even though we are apart and not able to gather together as the family of God, we rejoice in the great truth that our Savior lives and that he is Lord of heaven and earth and that he is ruling from your right hand. And there is nothing too powerful, nothing too great for our Savior. Lord, we are thankful for the privilege of having eternal life and of knowing that because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, that we have life. We have fellowship with you and we have fellowship with one another. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time in the word today. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. These are unusual times. The world, the whole world has been affected at the same time by an event like none other, probably since the days of World War II. This COVID-19 coronavirus epidemic has affected us all to some degree or another. For some of us, it has affected us deeply through serious illness and possibly death of someone close to us. For others of us, it has disrupted our lives, our work, our travel plans, our school, the normal routines of our daily lives. One of the detrimental outcomes of this whole event has been the social distancing that we have had to practice and to put in place between one another. Some of us haven't been out of our homes or out of our yards in weeks. We haven't uh, been able to go to the hospital to visit loved ones who may be sick. We haven't been able to go to the nursing home to visit those who are elderly. We haven't been able to fellowship together as the people of God for four weeks now. This is not natural. This is not how God designed us to be because God created us to be social beings. And so if you're experiencing some grief, some sadness now because of this isolation, just know that you're not alone. And it's natural because God made us to be relational, social beings. And that's really the first idea that I want us to think about this morning is that God made us. We were designed to be in fellowship with one another and with our God. And really all human beings, all of us were designed to be in close relationship with other human beings. So we can start out from the very beginning in Genesis and we can see God looking at his creation and looking at the man that he had made and seeing that he is alone. And he said, this is not good. Genesis 2.18 says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God created Eve for Adam. God designed marriage between a man and a woman for the purpose of companionship and close friendship. 
At least that's a major purpose of marriage. Close, intimate relationship with one another. God made us relational beings to enjoy our other family connections. Fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, uncles and aunts, nephews and nieces, cousins, and even second cousins. They're a natural way for us to enjoy human-to-human interaction for which God made us and designed us to be in relationship with one another. Friendship, deep, close, personal friendship is a uniquely human phenomenon. Close friendship is a gift of God that is only possible because of the way that God made us, because he designed us to be social, relational beings. Proverbs speaks about friendship this way in Proverbs 17, verse 17. A friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in time of need. And so human beings are designed to be in close relationship with one another, with other human beings. But also human beings are designed to be in close relationship with our creator, God. Not only did God make us to be in relationship with one another, he made us to commune with him. From the opening verses of Genesis, we see God speaking with and communicating to the people that he had made. He takes special care to form Adam from the dust of the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. God initiates a covenant with Adam, not with the animal kingdom. God gives specific instructions to Adam, not to the animal kingdom. In Genesis 3, 8, we get the indication that it was God's pattern to fellowship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Even after the fall, God continues to relate to and communicate with fallen humanity. He gives special revelation to Noah. And through that special revelation, God saved Noah and his family, and by extension, the whole future humanity. He saved them from the judgment of the flood. God called Abraham. God spoke to Abraham. God gave special revelation to Abraham. God counts Abraham worthy in Genesis 18 of revealing to him his plans of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah. The close relationship that God has with Abraham allows Abraham the opportunity to negotiate with God on behalf of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read in the Bible that God had a relationship with Moses such that he spoke with him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. We see that in Exodus and Deuteronomy, that the whole purpose of God forming the nation of Israel, calling them and entering into a covenant with them was so that he might dwell among them and he be their God and they be his people. And so human beings are designed to be in relationship with one another and with our God. But here's the problem. Sin gets in the way, doesn't it? Sin alienates us from our God and from one another. We don't often think about how much the fall affects every aspect of our reality in this world. 
The world in which we live is not the world that God originally made. It's been warped, marred, deformed, broken. Every aspect of our existence has been affected by humanity's fall into sin. Every broken relationship can be traced back to the fall. Every natural disaster and calamity can be traced back to the fall. Every hostile virus and bacteria can be traced back to the fall. Every broken relationship. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, their relationship with one another changed, didn't it? And it didn't change for the better. They saw each other very differently. What was once beautiful and free of shame was now a, something that brought guilt and shame to them. Blame and recrimination, those thoughts started to form in their minds and then be expressed in their words as Adam blamed his wife Eve for what had taken place. The first social distancing took place in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were just a couple of feet apart, but emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, they were miles apart. They were alienated from one another. Their perfect and harmonious and transparent union became strained, distanced, and veiled. And so sin has alienated us from one another. In its most obvious extremes, our alienation from one another results in murder, hatred, abuse, and violence. But even in our closest and friendliest relationships, the alienation of sin continues to rear its ugly head. Even the most intimate of marriages and the closest of friendships are but a shadow of what they might have been in an unbroken world. We were meant to be together, physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, socially. But sin and its resulting alienation separates us from one another. Right now, we are physically apart. As the church, right now, we're physically, physically apart. We cannot see one another as we would like. Because the fall, we live in a broken world where virus and disease cause sickness and death. And that's really the ultimate separation, isn't it? Death. The ultimate alienation, the ultimate separation is death. And so the penalty for sin, death, completely separates us from one another and from God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Death, the penalty of the fall, robs us of our spouses, our parents, our children, our brothers and sisters, our friends. There is no more ultimate separation in human experience than death. 
Death is a robber who steals our loved ones and friends. And so the grief that we experience at the death of a loved one is real and it's natural because we are relational beings. We are designed to love and to be loved. And so death is the most difficult of human losses. But sin not only alienates us from one another as people, it also alienates us from our creator God. Adam and Eve felt shame and fear before God. Adam blamed God for giving him the wife who gave him the fruit. What was harmonious and perfect just a couple of hours before was now broken and strained and severed. As a result of sin, we are cut off from God. We become spiritually dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, without God, without hope in the world, as Paul says in Ephesians. We stand under the judgment and the condemnation of God. God's holy wrath abides on us. And if we remain in that state of alienation and condemnation, we die and are eternally separated from God. That is what death ultimately is. Death ultimately is separation. And in spiritual death, we are separated from God, our creator. In physical death, we're separated from our loved ones and friends. In the second death, as John describes it in Revelation, we're separated from the presence of God forever and ever. And if you think about it, that's what hell is really about. More than the torment and the pain, hell is about eternal separation from God, loneliness and isolation from everyone and from God forever and ever. What a miserable existence that must be. Now, this message would be incredibly sad if it ended here. In fact, the story of human existence would be the greatest tragedy ever told if the story ended there. But it's not the end of the story, is it? There's more to the story because we read in the scriptures that resurrection results in reunion. Resurrection results in reunion. And so if sin alienates us, if sin separates us from one another and separates us from God, and death is the ultimate separation, the ultimate division between people and between us and God, resurrection is the reunion. Resurrection is the what brings us together. Now, the concept of resurrection has been mocked and scoffed at through the ages. Modern scientists, modern naturalists reject the idea of resurrection out of hand. It's impossible. When we die, we just go in the ground and that's it. But skepticism toward resurrection is not just a modern phenomenon. In fact, in Paul's day, when he was in the city of Athens with the Greeks reasoning with them, they mocked, they scoffed when they heard Paul talking about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Even some of the Jews in Jesus and Paul's day, the Sadducees, denied the very concept of 
resurrection. And so when Paul went about from place to place talking about Jesus of Nazareth and preaching about his resurrection from the grave, he was laughed at. He was rejected. It was scandalous. It was regarded as foolishness by those that listened. But Paul says the preaching of the cross and of the resurrection is wisdom to those who believe. The gospel story gives us hope for this lost, lonely, and broken world in which we live. The resurrection gives us hope. Now, the Bible actually speaks about two kinds of resurrection. Two kinds of resurrection. When we first hear that word, resurrection, we probably immediately think of the concept of physical bodily resurrection out of the grave. And the Bible does speak about that concept of resurrection. But the Bible also talks about a different kind of resurrection, a spiritual one. A spiritual resurrection of the heart, something that takes place in us internally by a work of God. And Jesus speaks about this resurrection in John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, don't mistake verse 25 of John 5 to be referring to physical resurrection. Jesus is not yet talking about that. Verse 25 is in the context of verse 24, namely that those who believe have life. So they've experienced a resurrection and have crossed over from death to life. Crossing from death to life is resurrection. But what Jesus is talking about here is a spiritual resurrection, a resurrection of the heart that is inseparably connected with faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The other clue that Jesus is talking about spiritual resurrection in verse 25 comes from the phrase, and has now come. So Jesus says in verse 25, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So the time is coming, but it's now come. It's here that those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live. So the resurrection of which Jesus speaks is in the here and now. It's not then in the future, in a future last day resurrection from the grave. He's talking about in the here and now, those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live. Those who hear the voice of the Son of God, they are spiritually resurrected and they believe in Christ, the Son of God. In John chapter 3, Jesus talks about a new birth. Those who are awakened by the Spirit are born again. It is a spiritual resurrection. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Christians were at one time in the past dead in their trespasses and sins spiritually dead, cut off from God without hope. But God made us alive. By his grace, 
He made us alive with Christ. That's a spiritual resurrection. And by the way, don't make the mistake that this spiritual resurrection of which Jesus speaks in John 5 is some ordinary common occurrence that can happen by normal means or by human effort. Spiritual resurrection of a dead, stubborn, rebellious heart is a miracle. It is miraculous. In fact, Paul says it is just as miraculous as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave after his crucifixion. In Ephesians 1:18 and following, Paul says that the power of God that is at work in us who believe is the same mighty power with which God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God above all authorities and powers. In fact, this spiritual resurrection of the heart is only made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the point that we're making here is that resurrection results in reunion. How is this true of spiritual resurrection? Well, in a couple of ways. First, spiritual resurrection by means of the new birth reconciles us to God. We are reunited with our creator, God. What was once alienation and separation is now togetherness. Ephesians 2.13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Colossians, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And so spiritual resurrection reunites us to God. There is a reunion with God. But a second way that spiritual res- uh, resurrection results in reunion is that it fixes our alienation that we have between one another. We are reunited with our fellow man in peace and friendship. True fellowship and communion with one another are most truly accomplished only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel creates a family of God. It creates brothers and sisters in Christ who are bound together by a union that is stronger than blood. It is the union of the Holy Spirit, which is eternal. Think about this. The union of a man and woman in marriage is until death do us part. But the spiritual communion that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ is eternal. Our blood family ties are secondary to our union with Christ and with one another. Jesus Christ said, those who believe in me, they are my sister and brother, mother and father. The church of Jesus Christ is a spiritual body that is also an eternal family. It transcends race. 
so that Jews and Gentiles can worship together in one body. It transcends social class so that rich and poor, slave and free can worship together in the same body. And the church is designed to be in fellowship with one another physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, socially. But the problem right now is that we can't be together physically as the church in the same place. It's, it's not ideal. It is not the way the church is designed. The very word church means assembly. It means a coming together, a congregation meeting together, singing together where we can hear one another's voices is the intent. The church is meant to pray together, bowing in unison before our holy God. The church is meant to hear the word of God together. What I'm doing right now, trying to preach into a camera in an empty room, this is not what preaching is. It's not ideal. I can't see your eyes. I can't see your heads nodding in agreement with the truths of the word of God. I can't hear your amens. The preaching of the word of God is a corporate affair, cannot be replicated over the airwaves or through a internet cable. The partaking of bread and wine in the Lord's table must be together. You can't have communion if you're not communing together as the family of God. Jesus is the incarnate son of God who came to us in flesh and blood. Jesus met physically with his disciples in the upper room on that Passover night to eat that meal together. In fact, in ancient Israel with the Passover, they were supposed to come to the holy place. They were supposed to come to the tabernacle or to the temple, and they were supposed to gather as the congregation of the Lord and partake of the Passover meal together. But what if they couldn't do that? What if they were far away? What if they were sick? What if they were ceremonially unclean and couldn't partake together of the Passover? Did they do it in their own homes? No. In fact, there was provision made in the law for them to do it on a different day the next month. In other words, coming together and meeting as the body of Christ, uh, as the body of Israel to partake of Passover was more important than the day on which they did it. And so we will not partake of communion until we are able to come back together. There are certain things that you have to be the church assembled in order to really do. And so we will wait and we long. We desire, we long for that reunion because the new birth and spiritual resurrection creates a family of God that love one another and are intended to regularly assemble together in fellowship. Spiritual resurrection results in reunion. But there is that other concept of resurrection in the scriptures. In fact, Jesus talks about it in that passage in John 5 that we were referring to a few moments ago. In John 5, 24 to 26, Jesus talked about a spiritual kind of resurrection, that those who hear his voice, they believe and they're awakened from spiritual death. 
But a few verses later in verse 28, he says, do not be amazed at this for a time is coming. And notice he doesn't say and now is because it's still future. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. So he makes it clear that this resurrection he's talking about in verse 28 is a physical resurrection from the grave. That those who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So there is a spiritual resurrection of the heart, but there is also a physical resurrection from the grave. And that is the ultimate reunion, isn't it? Resurrection from physical death reunites us with the whole family of God and with the full presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because Jesus has risen from the grave, we have the eternal hope of a future resurrection for all of God's redeemed people. The resurrection of Christ is described in the Bible as the first fruits of those who have died in Christ. It is the first of many more to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first of many to come. He's also described in the scriptures as the firstborn from among the dead. He's the firstborn in the line of many other brothers and sisters who will come. Colossians 1.18, he is the body, or Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In Romans 8.29, it refers to him as the firstborn. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What does that mean, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters? It means there are many more to come, and that will ultimately result in glorification, resurrection. Verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And so Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave guarantees a physical resurrection of all of God's people. Jesus Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. His glorification guarantees our glorification. And you know what will take place at that glorious resurrection? A reunion. A reunion. A reunion of all of God's redeemed people from every age, from all over the world. We are brothers and sisters of Abraham and of Moses, of the apostles, Paul, Peter, and John. But we're separated by time, aren't we? And death. But the resurrection will remove those boundaries of time and death. And we'll have a reunion with Abraham and Moses and Paul and Peter and John. Right now, We are brothers and sisters in the family of God with Christians in California and New York, in England and Germany, in Russia and China, in Kenya, in Argentina, but we're separated by great distance. But one day we'll be reunited. 
and we will be, we'll have a reunion as the people of God. Paul talks about this great hope that we have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He's writing to Christians who are concerned about their brothers and sisters in Christ who have already died. What's going to happen to them? And Paul tells them they're coming with Jesus when he comes back. There's going to be a resurrection. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so notice this, we will be with the Lord forever. First Thessalonians four thirteen to 17 is talking about a grand reunion a reunion of God's people and a reunion of God's people with the Lord. How is this possible? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Revelation 5 describes a beautiful scene of all of God's redeemed people from every age and from every tongue and tribe and nation gathered around the throne, singing praises to the lamb who was slain for our redemption. And the most precious reunion of all is not going to be our reunion with each other, but our reunion with God. The presence of God and the perfect fellowship of God that was lost in the Garden of Eden in the fall is going to be restored in a new Eden, in a new heavens and earth, in a new Jerusalem. God will dwell with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. The separation from one another, the separation, alienation from God is fixed by the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ restores our fellowship with one another and with our God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees a future reunion with one another as the family of God and with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we long for that day. No, right now, we're separated from one another. We're separated from our friends, from our classmates, some of us from our coworkers. We're separated from one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God. We long for a reunion. We're looking forward to the day when we can gather together in this place all as one, as the church of the living God. But there's an even greater reunion to come. And that is a reunion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees. That one day, all of God's people from every age, from all over the world, will be together as one. And we will be together not only with each other, we will be together with God. And that's a great reunion that we long for. And so we say with the Apostle John, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, today we give you thanks.
because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We serve a risen Savior. Because he lives, we live. Because he lives, we have hope. Because he lives, we have a future resurrection that is guaranteed. Because he lives, we have a future reunion with all of God's people from every age and with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we do long for that time. Lord, in the midst of this this very uncertain and unusual time in which we live, Father, I pray that you would uh, reinvigorate our hope and remind us of the great truth that there is a reunion coming. Hopefully for us as the people of God in the short term, a reunion where we can gather together again as the assembled church. But Father, we long for and look forward to an even greater reunion to come. And that is when we can see one another, the saints of every age, and we can see you, our Savior. Father, may your blessing be on your people. And may we rejoice today in our risen Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen. May the Lord bless you this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed.